Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. My guest this week is sports dietitian Brooke Zernacki of Intentful Nutrition, and she is here today to talk to us about nutrition for the perimenopausal endurance athlete. Perimenopause is the phase of your hormonal changes that happens before you hit menopause. And yeah, your needs do change. There's a lot that happens during this time of your life. And there's also ways that you can support your needs as an athlete, as a perimenopausal athlete with nutrition. So here is Brooke to talk to us about nutrition for the perimenopausal athlete. Brooke, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. I'm very, very excited to be here today chatting with you all things nutrition. So before we get started, go ahead and tell us about yourself. How did you become a sports dietitian and about your athletic background? Yes. So I became, well, a sports dietitian because I love running. So I wanted to uh, help the people that I love running with and just am around all of the time. Um, I was a collegiate athlete in college as well, so that is a big part of my background and why I'm so passionate about helping athletes and runners fuel properly for their sport, not only their sport, but also their day-to-day life because we're humans outside of our sport as well. So that's a little bit about you know my background and how I came to be a sports dietitian, but truly it's because I'm just so passionate about helping this, this population. It's funny, I've talked to obviously a number of dietitians on the show and a number of coaches and for most people, there's an element of, well, I mean, I just wanted to get better. And then like, and then I wanted to help other people, but it's that curiosity of like, how can I use my knowledge to improve my own performance? And then you realize, oh my God, this is a career I can have. And I can use this to talk about what I love to talk about with other people and like make it my job. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And it's like so ironic because when I first got into dietetics, like my whole shtick was that I was going to help solve like the obesity epidemic. And if you like know anything about me, like I am, I don't talk about weight loss at all. Um, I'm very much like we need to eat more. And so my entire, like, I guess, perspective on nutrition shifted as I went through college. And now that, now that I've worked with so many athletes, you know, in my three years of being a dietitian, it's like a totally different perspective. Um, but I'm always telling people to eat more food and it's like the total opposite of what I originally thought I was getting into. So yeah, I'm just, it's, it's been a journey for sure. (laughs) And I know in our conversation today, there's probably going to be like top, like kind of areas of topics where we touch on body composition and weight gain or weight loss. And I think that's going to be a really exciting area to explore in a way that people probably don't think about. And if you're familiar with the show, like you clearly know what my position is, like my guest position is on like fueling your body and being a healthy person. Um, But our topic today, what we're talking about today is nutrition for the perimenopausal athlete. So athletes, endurance runners primarily who are entering or who are in perimenopause and how their needs, how your needs change as you go through this change in your life. So Brooke, tell us first and foremost, like what is perimenopause? Yes. So perimenopause is the time between you having your period and you not having your period. And so it can last anywhere up to 10 years. Um, On average, people are in perimenopause for seven to eight years. It begins for some people in their late 30s, others it's in their mid to late 40s. 
Um, so for everybody, it kind of differs, but on average, people are usually hitting menopause, which is actually only one day. Menopause is when you have not had a period for a consecutive 12 months. So the time in between that, when you're having irregular periods, maybe you go like three months without a period and then you get a bleed, that is what we classify as, as perimenopause. And then menopause is the day that you have not had a period for 12 months. And that average age, most women hit that by 51 years of age. And again, that's not like a, a, a hard and fast number, but that's the average uh, age that people usually hit menopause that ends perimenopause. I did not know that. <laughs> menopause is one day. And so then I guess it goes perimenopause. You have your single day of menopause and then you are postmenopausal. Yes, exactly. Interesting. And I think it's very important for us to classify this definition around having a regular menstrual cycle because we know the way that underfueling and disordered eating and irregular menstrual cycles can be relatively and unfortunately common amongst the endurance athlete community. Like it could be a struggle for some athletes to understand whether or not they're perimenopausal because having an irregular period has been normal for them because of a variety of factors. Is that something that you sometimes see in your practice? Yeah, and it's really tricky because, and here we go like going off track of nutrition, but just for a second, um, it's hard to know without having your hormones to be tested, like whether you are in like an amenorrheic state versus a perimenopausal state. So if you are not eating enough food, it can become difficult for me to know like without blood tests, where you are at with your cycle, especially if you are, you know, a middle-aged woman. So it, it can be hard. And that's one of the tricky things about, you know, determining the, the stage in which you are in. But I will also say that if you are a menorrheic, like you're not getting a period and you're supposed to be having regular period, you have a lot of the symptoms or you can have a lot of the symptoms of perimenopause. So it's actually, it's really interesting in that way where it's like, they're not, they're not the same thing, but the symptoms are similar that makes sense. So what are those things? Cause it's clearly more than just like, Oh, you're just, your period becomes irregular. Like there is a whole bunch of other stuff that's hormonally going on in our bodies. Yeah. So when you are in perimenopause, your hormones are going nuts. That's, that's like the simplest way to explain it. So every, when you are not in perimenopause, your hormones have a very predictable pattern every month. And this is assuming that someone who is not on birth control, um, hormonal birth control, I should say. So when you're in that perimenopausal state, your hormones are wacko taco. Like we're talking about estrogen and progesterone. So estrogen can increase some months, estrogen can decrease some months. But when you are going through perimenopause, you see a downward trend in both estrogen and progesterone, but the ratio of those two things are not as predictable as they once were. So that's where we get these symptoms of like hot flashes, um, bone loss, weight gain, uh, brain fog, sore joints, like I, the list goes on with all of the symptoms that occur during perimenopause. Um, and I also want to preface this by saying like a lot of women just aren't educated about these things. And so when you hit perimenopause, it can be like a total slap in the face because you're like, I didn't realize any of this was going to happen because nobody talks about it. It's like this taboo thing. Uh, but thankfully, we, we do have a lot of, you know, professionals out there that are beginning to talk about it more. So there's more awareness around it. But your hormones are so unpredictable during this time. And that is why we have, you know, for some people, these pretty severe and significant symptoms around perimenopause. I actually read, I, I don't have this in front of me. This is something just I remember knowing about 
um, one of the most vulnerable populations for onset of eating disorders or disordered eating is actually if you were experiencing menopause or your postmenopausal. Like I know we typically think of disordered eating and disorders kind of being the realm of teenagers, and it's not. Anybody can get an eating disorder at any age. But one of our most vulnerable populations is people who are entering perimenopause or who are postmenopausal, because of I was it kind of the way I guess that we talk about you know how how our bodies change and like how it's society tells you it's a bad thing and like nobody has the tools to kind of cope with that and approach it in a healthy way um do you know anything about that totally like off the wall question but (laughs) yeah i have not i've not heard that statistic but it does not surprise me um a lot of the women that i work with in my practice are adolescents and then also uh, middle-aged women who are going through perimenopause and a lot of these populations have a lot in common in the fact that they they have growing body they have differing bodies like their body composition is changing they may be gaining weight they're experiencing a lot of body changes and they have a lot of symptoms that might be going on too of like what the heck is going on with my body right and so you know i do honestly compare perimenopause to puberty because it is such a massive shift and it can trigger a lot of disordered eating um and again with perimenopause a lot of people it's like this big scary thing of like, oh my gosh, it's the worst time of your life. And you know, you're gonna be miserable and you're gonna gain weight. And it's like this big scary thing, which is why I'm so passionate about talking about it. Because if you know what to expect and you know how to support your body, like control the controllables, you can go into perimenopause and postmenopause with so much more confidence. Like your life is not over when you're going through perimenopause. And Yes, your symptoms can be pretty severe, but again, if you know how to tackle them and you know how to get through the time by focusing on what you can control, we can mitigate the disordered eating. We can mitigate this like fear and shame and guilt around our, our changing bodies. I would think that this is probably exacerbated in, in runners because it typically accompanies an age of our lives where most of us are starting to feel our, our age. And I'm not perimenopausal, um, but I will be one day, you know, yeah. but I, we've been recently talking on this podcast about, you know, how do we stay competitive as runners as we age and for everybody that means something different, but you know, for runners, we're all, no matter kind of where we fall on our finishing times, we're all very passionate about what we do. We want to do the best that we can. And a lot of people, have goals and have you know think they have this like unfinished business and i do know that working with a population in their late 30s and in their 40s um it it sometimes feels like when you hit that point in your life like oh my god i've run out of time to achieve the goals i want to achieve and my body is changing and i don't like it so it's like it's an extra tricky time for runners specifically because you've like you might feel like you're getting slower or like you're quote unquote out of time and maybe you're gaining weight maybe you're not sleeping as well maybe you're getting all these symptoms and it just feels like you don't have any control anymore yeah and that's that's a huge thing and what i'll say about that too is I'll have a lot of women come to me and they're like, I am doing the things that I used to do to lose weight and it's not working anymore. And so your body is just like, it's like, I'm done with the restrictive dieting. I'm done with the under eating and your body just becomes so much more sensitive to like basic self-care things like eating enough food, getting enough sleep and things like that. So the body just, you have to take extra care with your body. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Like how do we support that through nutrition Um, But that's a big thing that I see is like, you know, you can't just go on Weight Watchers and expect to lose weight in 
a month and be good like you used to. Like your body's like, we're done with that, with that crap. We're not, we're not doing it anymore. So I see that a lot too. So let's talk about some of the like kind of very real and most common symptoms. And we're kind of going to overlap on, you know, ways that your training might affect this too. But you mentioned things like muscle loss and bone mass loss, and those both have nutritional factors and also training factors. So thinking about ways that we can support kind of our changing needs from a nutritional standpoint, but also from a training standpoint, like I am, I am now becoming even more of a proselytizer for heavy lifting, right? If, yeah. Especially if you're entering men- perimenopause, running alone is not going to cut it. You can't just run. You need to build your old lady body, right? Dense bones, strong muscles, but you also need to get the proper nutrition for that too. So what do you typically see? Let's talk kind of like a typical you know, client profile, and this can be kind of a made up amalgamated person. What do you typically see when somebody comes to you and they're in perimenopause and they're experiencing kind of the common symptoms and, they, and they're coming to you and saying, these are the things that I have tried and they're not working, how can I do better? Yes, so the biggest symptom honestly, that I see with middle-aged women is like, I have this, I now have this belly that I didn't have before. And so the body composition changes where you're maybe losing muscle and gaining fat. And that is a very natural process that happens through perimenopause in a sedentary individual. And I also see it in the active population. So there is a way to mitigate that through nutrition and through strength training. But what I don't tell my athletes and what I don't promise them is that we're going to be able to get rid of that belly fat. Like, I think that's a very unrealistic expectation. Like you should expect your body to change a little bit. Um, and so I'll say that right off the bat, like, you know, I'm not a weight loss dietitian. I, I hear you and I totally, you know, I, I empathize with you that you are experiencing these body changes, but how can we work with your body instead of trying to fight it all of the time? So Again, instead of that very restrictive pattern of food intake, the 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 um, the impulse when you start to gain weight or you start to see a shift in body composition is, oh, I need to do more. I need to exercise more and I need to eat less. And this is literally the worst thing that you can do, not only for your bone mass and your muscle mass, but also for like your brain and your energy levels and your sleep patterns. So all of the symptoms that we see with perimenopause of like the poor sleep, uh, the brain fog, the the loss of muscle, the gain in body mass, the gain in body fat around the abdominal section, moving more and eating less is counterproductive to that. And that's the impulse that we all have because again, we've we've grown up in this society that tells us the minute that we put on like five to ten pounds, we have to get rid of it immediately, right? And so what's the what's the thing that we do? We just eat less and we move more. So that is like the common, um, the common trend that I see. Did I answer your question? Yeah. And I, in thinking about kind of the way that we, the way that marketing about weight loss and, and weight management solutions typically tends to be very low carb focused, um, and, and, or low calorie focused, which if you are a runner, if you are a 5k, 10k, half full ultra marathoner, that advice is not for you. We're not going to talk about that position of the general population. We're talking about our active individuals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it is. It's that's like the hot topic and the hot trend right now. And I'm sure you, you, I know you've had lots of dietitians on here to talk about why we need carbs. So I don't have to preach to the choir again. Um, but yeah, that is also the impulse of like, let's just go low carb and let's you know slash the calories again and. It's so counterproductive to what we need to do as runners to properly fuel our body and support 
the function of our body too. Like it's not just about our weight. It's not just about the way that our body appears, but also how is your body functioning? Like what does your gut health look like? What is, how are you feeling? What are your energy levels like? What's your blood sugar regulation? Like all of those things can be thrown off when one, we're not getting enough carbs and two, we're not getting enough energy in our body. So, um, you know, that's, that is definitely a very important topic and touch to put on this conversation. But I think it's very important and like you said, you have those conversations with your clients. You say, like, I empathize, I empathize with why you're feeling the way that you do. It can be very scary to go through this time, to have these changes happen, and then to have somebody say, actually, you need to eat more, right? Yes. Like, that's that's like a big ask for some people. Yeah, yeah. and that that is a conversation that I have almost every single day. And it is extremely difficult. And the only thing that I can ask of my clients and of the listeners today is to just trust the process, right? And it's hard to do that when, again, there's just this like pervasive messaging of you have to eat less in order to, to lose weight or to, you know, to be healthier. And that's just not the message that I want to get across to my athletes. Um, and so I think about it and I try to ask my athletes to think about it of like, can we put the appearance of your body and the number on the scale, like, can we put that away in a little box and acknowledge that it's there, like acknowledge that you want to change that, but also let's, let's control the controllables, right? We can't always control what happens to our body and what happens to our weight. What we can control is how we're eating, how we're moving and how we're feeling. And so that is really where I like to empower my clients to step into their, to their wisdom and to their intuition uh, because we can't always control the way that our body looks. And that's really hard for a lot of us, myself included, of course. Like when your body changes, when you have, when you've done nothing different, it's like, what am I doing wrong? It's not that you're doing anything wrong. It's just that your body is changing. This is a, a new season of life. I am a runner, but sometimes I like to cosplay as somebody who is maybe a triathlete or a cyclist, especially since it is the Tour de France going on right now. And I'm very inspired by watching the Tour de France and watching all these amazing athletes, these cyclists do what they're doing over in France. But I was on a run the other day and I was wearing a top that could have been mistaken for a triathlete top. It had kind of those quarter sleeves, maybe something a cyclist would wear. And I thought to myself, yeah, I'm feeling this vibe. You know what I need now to complete my look? some wraparound single lens shades and I don't have any but I know where to get them I know that Gooder makes a pair because Gooder has a pair of sunglasses for everything styles colors every occasion you could think of any vibe you want to create Gooder sunglasses has a pair for you now, the specific style that I need to complete my cosplaying as a triathlete look is called the Wrap G. So I'm going to go ahead and order a pair of those. But I want you to know that there is a pair of gooders out there with your name on it. Well, not literally, but definitely one that's going to complete whatever running outfit you are trying to create. Gooders are my favorite sunglasses for a reason. They are no slip, no bounce, super affordable, starting only $25. There are nine different styles available, plus snow goggles, so many colors, so many collaborative collections, so many options for you to create the vibe that you want to create on your next run. And because they're so affordable, you can get more than one pair. You can also get free shipping on your next order on Gooder.com using code RUNEXP. That's code R-U-N-E-X-P on Gooder.com. Look good, run Gooder. So thinking about 
maybe it'll help to compare a little bit and if somebody's maybe newer to the show or kind of newer to you know sport nutrition endurance nutrition you know what do we typically recommend we're going broad strokes this is broad advice this is not individual advice right but what is what are kind of the general recommendations for endurance nutrition look like um, when we're dealing with you know the let's say the under 35 crowd and then how do those recommendations and guidelines change for perimenopausal population yeah so what my recommendations it's, it's tricky because my recommendations don't necessarily change but there's there's more emphasis on certain so I am always emphasizing, first and foremost, like we have to be getting enough nutrition because if you are not, you're putting your body under so much stress and inflammation that we're going to drive our cortisol levels up. So as I mentioned before, the body, the perimenopausal body is just a lot less resilient to stress because of that fluctuating hormone. So if you are under eating, you are exacerbating the amount of inflammation, the amount of stress that you're putting on your body. So it's going to drive cortisol up. So we absolutely need to have enough fuel on board to minimize that stress response. And the second emphasis is on protein. So protein needs, it's not that they necessarily increase during this time, but you need to make sure that you're hitting an adequate amount of protein. That, that could be anywhere from 1.5 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight, not pound, kilogram, um, depending on the athlete. And so those are the two main focuses is like eating enough food, getting enough protein. And then I will add in a third one there of just the overall quality of your food intake becomes increasingly important because I'm going to tie it back into gut health. I love talking about the gut. Your gut microbiome also shifts significantly. And this is very new research of, you know, when your body does go through perimenopause or any hormonal shift in general, your gut microbiome is going to change. And so what research is showing is that when you're going through perimenopause, your gut microbiome, the diversity actually decreases um, and your gut permeability increases. So you're more susceptible to that inflammation. So that's why the quality of your nutrition matters during this time as well to make sure that you're getting all of your prebiotics, your probiotics, all of your vitamins and your minerals to support a robust uh, gut lining. That was a lot I just said there. So that's good. That's good. And I think when people hear quality in the context of nutrition, they tend to see dollar signs and think organic, local farm raised, you know, all the kind of boutique and like, oh, you know, if you really care about your health, you're going to buy the organic blueberries. Um, and this is we're not here to like debate organic versus conventional uh, <laughs> food. Right. But but that's not what you're talking about. No. Yeah. And that like I'm also not talking about only having clean eating and no processed foods like that's also not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about, again, we have to focus on the first two things first before we even touch on the quality of like making sure that you're getting enough food, making sure that you're getting enough protein. And what I mean by quality is eating an appropriate amount for you that is filled with fruits and veggies, whole grains, lean proteins, you know, like the, the classic things that we always talk about, like the basics of nutrition, right? We've got to nail those things down, but that doesn't mean that there's not room for your, you know, your white, oh gosh, I even hate to say like the white foods. Like I absolutely want you to still eat pasta. I absolutely still want you to eat rice and I still want you to eat potatoes. Like all of those things have very much a benefit to your body. Um, so we're not talking about like only clean eating or only, you know, like non-processed foods here, because that also becomes a problem as well when you get too much fiber and all of those things. So, um, yeah, by quality, I'm, I'm really meaning like the basics of nutrition when we go back to the basics. 
I want to ask you, let's dial in on the on the protein thing. Um, and I'm very upfront with people who work with me, you know, like I do know, you know, I, I know more than the average person about nutrition, right? But I'm not a dietitian. Uh, I tend to see the athletes who I speak with um, fall into kind of two camps along the spectrum of protein awareness, right? Let's call it that. Um, some athletes who are like all in on protein and are focusing on protein at the expense of not getting enough other things, right? They are only eating protein after a workout and not eating carbs. They are like getting maybe too much protein for their needs. Um, and then kind of the other end of the spectrum is athletes who aren't getting nearly enough protein. And obviously there's a bunch of people who are in the middle, but when you're talking about kind of the two most common things that I see when people ask me about nutrition and specifically protein, that's what I tend to see. So can you speak to that a little bit? And we talk about, you know, protein, what enough means. Um, and I know you threw out some basic numbers about grams per kilogram of body weight, but I want to ask you, is that something that you also tend to see in the populations that you work with? Yeah, absolutely. There, I, I tend to see more of the not enough protein versus the too much protein. Um, I also think it's because I work with a lot of females. I think males maybe tend to be a little bit more heavier on the protein, not to generalize, but that's usually what I see. Um, and so there's also a misconception that a lot of us think we need more protein than we do carbs. And actually the majority of your diet should be coming from carbohydrates. Um, so protein is very, very important, but it's not the majority of what you're going to be eating, if that makes sense. Like if, if we talk about percentages, and again, I hate to even like put out these numbers because it's not for individual. It's like, this is very general, but generally your carbohydrate intake is going to be anywhere from like 45 to 50% of your intake, your protein. Did I say carbohydrate or protein? Yeah. Carbohydrates carbohydrate. 45 to 50% pregnancy brain. My gosh. Um, protein is going to hover right around 20%. And then the rest is fat, which, you know, puts you at like 30 to 35%. So again, general numbers, this is not meant for individual advice, but just to give you an idea of a picture of like how much we're talking about when we're talking about these things, uh, protein is important, but it's not like the majority of your diet. I also want to talk about when and like when to get protein throughout the day and how much protein you need to get at each meal. Um, not a fan of one meal a day type people. Uh, you do need to get enough protein at regular intervals throughout the day. What does that look like? Yes. So that is so important to have, you know, not just like overloading your system with protein at once. Your body's going to utilize the protein better if you have it spread out throughout the day. So typically I tell athletes to try to focus on like 20 to 30 grams of protein at each meal and then snacks anywhere from like 10 to 20 grams of protein at snack time. And, you know, by just following those like little guidelines, you'd be surprised and to be like, wow, I, you're either saying like, I'm definitely not getting enough protein or it's like, oh, I'm good. You know, so that, that can provide you with just a little uh, rough guideline to get you started. Um, usually I see people lacking in protein around snack time or they're not even eating snacks at all. But snacks can be so helpful for you to not only, one, get in enough intake, but also a way for you to increase your protein intake over the day as well. So I'm a big fan of snacks, and I'm a big fan of pairing your carbohydrates with a protein at snack time. 
I have seen some some other recommendations from dietitians talking about postmenopausal and I think perimenopausal protein needs that may it might be a little bit more than that. Like so if you know 20 to 30 grams is kind of the general recommendation per meal for like I said the under 35 crowd, you know, that might be more like 30 to 35. You know, I I always like to start with those basic guidelines too because most women that I work with are not in that perimenopause range or just not even hitting those numbers to begin with. So, you know, and, you know, I don't want to get too far into the weeds of like the specific amino acids that we need because we can definitely go down that route. But I think that just for the sake of keeping it simple and not overcomplicating it, just to have, just, just be thinking about protein, how much is in this and how can I maximize it? Um, and I have found that when my when my athletes, specifically the middle-aged women, focus on this, they're like, I have so much more energy. I have so much more satiety. I'm not getting a lot of cravings throughout the day. My brain fog is so much better. And, like, it's truly amazing. Again, I think it's just that the, the, the women in perimenopause are so much more sensitive to not getting enough protein. What does 20 to 30 grams of protein look like, like in a lunch, for example? Yeah, so I usually like to explain it like a fist size of protein. So like a fist size of a chicken breast, a fist size of like a piece of fish. Um, it could be like a cup of tofu, like that kind of thing. That would be 20 to 30 grams. Also a serving of Greek yogurt, um, a scoop of protein powder. Like those are all examples of, you know, 20 to 30 grams of protein. Does the source of the protein matter? Plant-based, animal-based? I know that there are people who have dietary preferences around eating plant-based and who may have concerns about like the bioavailability of different protein powders or different sources of protein. How much does that matter? Yeah, this is such a tricky thing to answer because it's very personal for a lot of people. So I like to keep it very fact-based. Your body is going to absorb protein from animal sources a hell of a lot better than it does from plant-based sources. That's not to say that you shouldn't eat plant-based sources of protein or that you can't be plant-based, that you can't be vegetarian or vegan, but it's a lot easier for you to get the nutrients from animal-based products um, than it is from plant-based products. So I am a big fan of meat products uh, because you're going to get more nutrition from them and you're going to absorb that protein a lot better. So that's my stance. <laughs> I know it's very uh, controversial, but I'm again, I'm not saying I'm against plant-based eating. I absolutely am a plant-forward person, but I also think it's really important that if you can eat meat and you do eat meat, that it that, that you that you do. <laughs> so I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I, for nutrition, I mean, for a lot of this stuff, it's like, like, and you've even said, like, I'm not getting to get into the weeds. We're going to make this as simple as possible. Like, let's just make sure we're getting enough first. And for a lot of people, I find that they want to put the cart before the horse, right? They yeah. want to get into like, well, Huberman's lab said this. And like, I read <laughs> in the study that this, and I'm like, you're not even eating enough. Like, it doesn't even apply to you. But, and so, you know, I think we, we tend to want to get really nitpicky about certain things and we're not necessarily even kneeling the basics. And again, it's not to say that you can't get enough protein as a plant-based athlete. You're just gonna need to do some really 
forth, you know, a big planning on getting enough and making sure that you're not getting too much fiber along with that. Like it's not that it's not possible, but I would guess I'll say there's a higher barrier to entry to getting it right first and foremost. And again, some people tend to get a little bit over into the weeds on stuff that like doesn't even concern them yet. Yeah, absolutely. And I always like to take, I always say to my clients, like, let's zoom out for a second before we even talk about this, like nitty gritty, you know, plant-based versus animal-based, like, are you getting enough protein? Let's look at your nutrition from a bird's eye view. Let's look at your lifestyle from a bird's eye view. Where are the lowest hanging fruits? Let's go over, let's go after those first. And a lot of times it's like, let's make sure that you're eating enough food first before we even touch on like the source of your protein um, or maybe even like supplements because that's another big thing. Uh, you know, it's it's really easy to overcomplicate nutrition because of all of the, the information that we're inundated with on social media. And so I always tell my, my athletes, like, let's just take a step back for a second. Let's take a deep breath and look at where we're at right now. Let's not let's try not to get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's just take it, you know, one step at a time. Do our hydration needs change in perimenopause? That is a great question, but I, I don't know. I will say again that uh, women become a lot more sensitive to dehydration, especially if they're experiencing hot flashes. So adequate hydration is super important just for that vasomotor like regulation. Um, hot flashes can become a lot worse if you are dehydrated. So uh, making sure that you're properly hydrated, making sure that your urine is you know pale yellow on a daily basis, adding electrolytes if you need to. If we're recording this in the middle of summer, like add electrolytes before your runs, add electrolytes after your runs. If you're living in a really humid place, really hot place, um, it, it just becomes more important. So that's like another point I just want to drive home is your body just becomes so much more sensitive. And so it will let you know, like if you're not taking care of it, essentially. <laughs> but I feel like there are so many of us who are spend de- spending decades like squashing every natural feeling and like signal that comes from our bodies. And I mean, I feel like I've spent the past you know, six years learning how to listen to my body because I spent 30 years ignoring my body. And it's hard sometimes to be like, am I angry or am I hungry, right? Am I thirsty or am I tired? Like I'm trying to, you know, and I'm getting obviously so, so much better at it. But at, at when I first started, like trying to figure out what my body was trying to tell me, I had no idea. I had no idea what it was trying to say. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's so it, it really does amaze me. It's because we have been taught to like suppress all of these things, like chew gum if you're hungry, drink water if you're hungry. And we're, we're just taught to like rely on external factors like the scale or, you know, the size of our clothes to guide our choices. But we're not actually asking ourselves, how do I feel? And do I like, do I feel good? I think that's a question a lot of us just don't ask ourselves. Um, because we think we have to do X, Y, or Z to be healthy when we're not actually asking ourselves, like, what's going on inside? Like, how am I feeling? Are there any changes to the intra-run fueling recommendations for perimenopausal athletes? No, I, I don't change my recommendations. That might not be, um, everybody, might, everybody might not agree with me, um, but I, I don't generally change the intra-run fueling recommendations. Is it more like as long as you're getting enough? And again, many people aren't, right? So like if you're not even yeah. getting enough, right, you may need to get more to get up to enough. Yes, absolutely. It That's like a, one of the big, you know, drivers of my practice is like before we get into the weeds, let's think about the simple things first. Like let's first make sure that you're getting enough. And even just the simple, uh, the simple fact of getting enough 
like is totally life changing. So, um, yeah, I don't change my recommendations based off of, you know, middle-aged women. I, I just want them to be adequately feeling their body. Let's talk about what enough is though. I always like to remind my audience about what proper run fueling recommendations are. Uh, so what are we looking at when we're looking at going on a run or a race of a certain length and what are the targets we're aiming for in that situation? Yeah. So anything, if you are running over 60 minutes, you need to be fueling your runs and you need to be taking hydration and you need to be taking a carbohydrate source with you. So if your run is under two hours, you need to be fueling with 30 to 60 grams of carb per hour, um, at least 14 ounces of water and at least 250 milligrams of sodium for that. Per hour. um, That's like each hour. hour. So I'm running for two hours. I need 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrate plus 14, minimum 14 ounces of water plus minimum 250 milligrams of sodium per hour that I'm running. Yes, 100%. And then anything over that two hours, we're going to want to bump the carbohydrate intake up to 60 to 90 grams and the water and the um, electrolytes stay the same. But that doesn't mean that you like can't have more, you know, those are like the bare minimums. So you know, I have plenty of athletes that need, you know, 500 milligrams of, of sodium per hour. I have some that need 800, like sodium needs greatly. They, they, there are such a wide range of what people need and it's, you know, it can be tricky to figure that out, but those are the general, general guidelines that I like to give. And I'm sure there are people sitting this going, oh, I'm not getting anywhere close to that. I don't take fuel unless I'm racing. And even then it's a single gel and <laughs> not I'll enough. Just- Yeah. One of my clients, uh, she's been ultra running for like decades and perimenopausal. Um, she started taking, well, first we started doing pre-run fuel and she's like, Brooke, I don't need that for like a, you know, an hour, 60 minute run. She's an ultra runner. She's like, I don't need that. That's like, you know, an easy run for me is an hour. And I'm like, well, can you just try it for me? Like, just, just see what happens. Um, and so like the first week that she tried it, she was like, man, you were right. <laughs> She's like, I feel so much better. I just have more sustained energy. I'm not feeling this like massive bonk at the end of my training run. I feel better throughout the day. And then we started looking at intra run fuel because she wasn't fueling unless it was race day. Um, and again, just night and day difference of just working up a little bit, like giving your body something when it's used to nothing, night and day difference. I'm not only like during your runs, but I also like to emphasize the after run part too. You feel so much better after your run. You're not like totally depleted. You don't have this nausea and you recover so much quicker after your runs when you adequately fuel during your runs. And kind of going to highlight people who've kind of heard me talk about this before. I used to be a, a low carb, like totally don't eat at all while before or while you run. And I thought it was normal to finish a long run and literally just like be on the couch for the rest of the day. I was so tired. I would finish runs and like throw up because I was so like I would be dehydrated and I come home like pound a Gatorade and then like puke it up. Like it was like dangerous stuff. Um, And that what just because our body is technically capable of doing something, I ran two marathons without any fuel. Technically, it was possible it felt terrible and I sure as heck didn't run as fast (laughs) as I did when I started eating uh, carbohydrates, um, especially during my run. But the thing is, I think that so often we think, well, this is the way I've always been able to do it, right? There's, if it's, it's, it seems like it's been working for me. And the thing I like to point out, I say the same thing about easy running, people who don't run easy enough on their easy days. It's like, look, you, just because 
it's not been terrible for you doesn't mean it's been good for you. And there's a difference yeah. there, right? Because so often the only the only experience, the only perspective we have is what we've done. And if we've never tried anything different, we have no idea what we could be leaving on the table. Absolutely. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. That is one of the mottos that I say to my clients all of the time. Um, and sometimes, you know, I get an eye roll, <laughs> but just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I often find that we just don't know how much we're leaving on the table until we start to do things a little bit differently. And it is hard to change a behavior. And like, I'm not saying that it's easy to make behavior changes, but when you have that positive feedback of what it truly feels like to be adequately fueled, you, you are like, I don't even know how I did this before. Like how, how, how was I even running before. I think it's, you know, it's just something that we don't realize happens until we're on the other side of it. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. There's another kind of subpopulation I want to talk about is that runners, uh, especially so kind of the, the subpopulation of our subpopulation, is that runners in perimenopause who have insulin resistance uh, or have been you know, told by their doctors that they have you know, maybe type 1 or type 2 diabetes or some sort of form of insulin resistance. Um, obviously, that is not the specific nature of our conversation. And obviously, you know, caveats, medical advice, we're not doctors, yada, yada, all that kind of stuff. But um, again, thinking about the recommendations for athletes with insulin resistance, uh, they I know that population tends to be very uh, hesitant around carbohydrate because of their medical condition. Yes. And so when we're talking about insulin resistance, like, of course, there's a major difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And regardless, we need to be eating carbohydrates. Um, and it's not that you can't have carbs. It's just that we just need to be paying attention to carbs in a different way. We need to make sure that we're eating enough protein and fat to balance out our blood sugars. Um, there is like a stepwise approach to it, but I, I often find that the advice is like to cut carbs or like to go keto or to go and you know not eat more than 50 grams of carb a day if you wanna manage your diabetes and that actually makes you more insulin resistant. So it's actually like counterproductive to what we want to do. Um, but if there's, a, of course, there's a time and a place to be keeping track of carbohydrates if we do have, you know, something like diabetes. So, yeah, again, it's not my not my area of expertise, but bottom line, you still need carbohydrates, whether or not you have insulin resistance. It's just a different approach. And I have actually um, had more experience with this personal experience with this recently with uh, pregnancy. I have had to track my blood sugars for the past month because of a potential gestational diabetes diagnosis. So I have learned so much about my blood sugar and just the way that we think about carbs and the stigma around carbs. Like I have caught myself being like, oh, I shouldn't eat carbohydrates. It's like, no, like I, I need to eat carbohydrates. I need them for my body. They're so important for so many different functions in the body. Um, so I've definitely had a more personal you know, experience with that and just the 
the stigma that surrounds the diabetes diagnosis and the insulin resistance uh, diagnosis. And it's also tough, too, because I know there are some people out there talking about the benefits of a ketogenic. We recently did an episode with Holly Samuel about low-carb diets for endurance athletes. People are like, well, I reversed my type 2 diabetes with a ketogenic diet. And it's like, but are you an are you a runner, right? I mean, I think yeah. there's there's – it's very important for people, if you are listening to this podcast, like I'm going to go ahead and say like you are a capital R runner, right? Like, <laughs> um, and I, I think there, it's interesting because there, there is some resistance to people who are like, oh, I don't know. I'm just, I don't really call myself a runner. Like I only run like 5Ks and 10Ks. And I'm like, what? It, that is, you are a runner. There is kind of a, people think in order to define themselves as an active athlete, they need to be training for an Ironman. That's absolutely not true. If you're running three times a week, you're straight up a runner and you need to feel yourself like one. But I, I say this to say that sometimes when we read things in on social media or, you know, generally speaking, this kind of broad diet advice, it's not aimed at active individuals. It's not aimed at people who are running multiple times a week, training for races, lifting, cross training, doing all the other things. That advice is not for you. Yeah, I'm so glad that you said that. I, I have that conversation constantly. It even even when I'm analyzing research about, you know, like fasting or keto, or I'm like, how does this apply to an athletic population? And a lot of times it doesn't. And it, that is so important because the mainstream advice oftentimes is like the opposite of what an athlete needs to be doing, which can make it really confusing. You're like, well, what the heck? I'm like, now I'm just totally lost. Um, so yeah, keeping that in mind is, is really, really important. And when you do see things or you see these headlines, you know, there's a big intermittent fasting headline that came out this week and all the things, um, ask yourself, like, does this apply to me as an active individual? Uh, because the research for active individuals is so much different than the research on just like the general population. And the general population that people who are doing these studies on is sedentary. The average yes. person in America is sedentary. They don't get anywhere close to 10,000 steps per day, right? They're not exercising at all, much less regularly, right? So I think it's very important. You know, you runner, listener, may think to yourself, in comparison to my friends who run, all, you know, all these miles and do all these long distance races, I am not as running as much as they are. Therefore, I am not as, you know, at the same kind of athlete as they are, I'm just a regular person, but you are not, compared to the general population, you are absolutely an active athletic individual. Yep, 100%. And, you know, that even applies to, like, to bring it, to tie it into the perimenopause conversation. Uh, like, a lot of the advice for the perimenopause of go low carb, of go keto, of do intermittent fasting, that your doctor might tell you to do, it doesn't apply to you, even if it did work for, you know, Another perimenopausal woman that was sedentary, right? Maybe it might work for them, but it's very likely not going to work for you. And it's not going to support your hormone health. It's not going to support your athletic endeavors. Um, and it's going to, again, make things worse. It's going to have a cascade effect. And it's it's just going to, to exacerbate your symptoms that you're already having. I want to ask you about Ozempic and Ozempic-like drugs, uh, because Every single freaking headline I read now is something about Ozempic and weight loss drugs and, and how these drugs work. Um, and I weirdly would never thought like when the news started coming out and kind of couldn't get away from it, like I'm not going to have to talk about this. But I am because it's infiltrated our world now. How much experience or exposure have you had to athletes asking you about Ozempic? And I guess we'll back up and say, what are we even talking about? We're talking about these drugs. Uh, and then have you had experience with this? 
Yeah, so Ozempic is a it is a diabetes management drug that is being used uh, off label, and off label just means it's not intended purposes. It's being used to help people lose weight, and uh, man, I, I have so much to say about Ozempic. Um, but I think the first place to start is like how how these drugs work. So Ozempic is a GLP one and that's just basically saying that it increases your insulin sensitivity and it also delays your gastric emptying. So what that means is that for somebody with diabetes, it helps them manage their blood sugar and it helps them manage their appetite. When we apply this to the general population who does not have diabetes, it becomes risky and it becomes dangerous. And then we apply that to the athletic population and it becomes extremely risky and extremely dangerous. So when we are putting a, a, a drug into our body that increases our insulin resistance, it's making us more susceptible to low blood sugar. And athletes are already at risk for low blood sugar, one, if they're not fueling enough throughout the day, but two, because when you exercise and when you run, you are increasing your insulin, insulin sensitivity on its own. So when you're adding that drug to your body and you don't have diabetes, it's just making that worse. Um, and giving potentially giving you hypoglycemic symptoms or low blood sugar symptoms. The other thing that happens that I mentioned was the, the early satiety or the, the slowing of the gastric emptying, which just basically lowers your appetite and it makes you feel very full. And so if you're an athlete that's already struggling to eat enough food, this is just going to make symptoms so much worse. And I have actually seen this. One of my clients did come to me Another ultra runner, um, her doctor put her on Ozempic because she wanted to lose weight uh, without really asking her about like what her lifestyle is. And I was like, oh no, oh no, this is making me really nervous uh, because you have a history of not eating enough food and this is going to make you feel really full and it becomes really hard to eat enough food. Um, I've talked to a lot of outpatient dietitians that work in clinics and they say that this is like the bulk of what they're seeing now. And people are just like, it's impossible to get enough food in their system to have their bodies function properly. And so the side effects that we're seeing with these drugs is nausea, diarrhea, um, like I said, that low blood sugar, just feeling really, really full and not able to get what you need. Um, I've seen, or they have seen uh, just low energy. I mean, it's, it's just crazy what happens to your body when these drugs are being inserted into your body when you don't need it. I want to be very clear, like if you have diabetes, these drugs are very effective, but if you don't, you're, it's, you're playing with fire, like it's dangerous. I mean, it seems to me it's a way of artificially, or not, it's a way of reducing your caloric intake without feeling, feeling like you're starving. So yeah. you are starving, but you don't feel like it. I think anybody who's been on any sort of very low calorie diet can empathize with what it feels like to live and not even live to barely survive on something like 1200 calories a day, right? Yeah. Doesn't feel great. So it sounds like what this drug is doing in somebody who doesn't have diabetes and doesn't need the benefits of what the drug actually does is essentially starving themselves without feeling it. Yep. Totally. And like, not to say that you don't feel the side effects, like, you know, some people have these really extreme side effects of like the diarrhea and the constipation and the nausea and the vomiting. Um, and then I've heard, oh gosh, then I've heard them say like, well, my doctor's like happy because I've lost weight. And it's like, but you feel like crap. Like, is that really what we want here? And then, you know, the other caveat to that is 
physiologically what happens when you go off of the drug. So because you've had like suppressed this appetite for so long, everything is going to come flooding back. Like your body has been starved for however many months you've been on this drug and then you go off of it and then it's like, like feast or famine type stuff kicks in and you feel so out of control around food. And I've talked to people who've gone off it that felt like this. They're like, I feel more out of control around food now than I did before I started the drug. And it makes total sense because your body was in the state of restriction for so long, but it like shut off the mechanism for us to actually listen to our body uh, to adequately feed ourselves. So it's almost like your body tries to play catch up and then that weight comes back on, your cravings are worse. Um, and then not to mention the mental toll as well. Like I'm really big on like the behavioral piece of, of food and nutrition. And it just makes you feel like you did something wrong. It makes you feel like you've lost willpower or that you're backpedaling. And there's a whole other side of like the guilt and the shame spiral that comes with that. And so, you know, I, like I said, I'm, I, I don't want to knock the drug, but I don't like it to use for any inappropriate things, you know, and without the warning label, essentially, it's like, you go to the doctor, you say, when you lose weight, they put you on this drug and then you go on it and you're like, oh, geez, this is not what I thought it was. So I just think there's a, a lack of education and social media has like glorified this, you know, drug as just this like miracle cure, which by the way, there's no miracle cure. You have to do the work. Like you, you need to have lifestyle changes in place first. I mean, it, it seems to me like, like a super highway to low energy availability and, and oh, yeah. relative energy deficiency in sport, which is basically a acronym full way of saying your body will eventually break sometimes literally like you may get stress fractures you may experience recurring injuries you might run terribly you might be thinner but you might feel like hot garbage and yeah, yeah it's like how do you feel yeah and like when is enough enough that's always my question too like I feel like we're always trying to strive for smaller leaner you know, and it's like your lowest weight is not always your healthiest weight. And oftentimes it's not your healthiest weight for so many people. Um, and like, that's, that's always when I ask the question, like, when is enough enough? And when does this end? Because it, it seems like it's never enough. You know, you get to that, to the quote unquote goal weight. And that's like, well, I, I could lose five to 10 pounds more. And it's like, well, why? And you know, when, when will it be enough? I guess that's always my question. And the reason I asked you about this, again, going back to the population we're talking about, perimenopausal athletes, is that it is such a delicate time in how we feel about our bodies and that if you are somebody whose doctor is willing to prescribe you Ozempic to combat the changing body composition that you don't like and don't know what to do about, it seems like like a freebie, like, sweet, here's my consequence-free way to get rid of that belly fat that I no longer, you know, that I don't want, that I that I didn't used to have and now I do have or whatever the change in your body is. But I think it's just important that we talk about what's actually happening when you take a drug like that. Yeah. The other thing too that's important to mention with this is that when you go on weight loss drugs like this that cause this really rapid loss in weight because of that severe energy restriction, um, you're losing muscle along with fat. And so when you're talking about the perimenopausal population where there's already a decrease in lean muscle mass because of the loss of estrogen, you're, you're compounding that effect. So you're, you know, doubling down on the lean muscle loss. You're also losing some fat, but again, like 
at what cost? Like you're also losing that very precious muscle, which is so important for running, lifting, energy levels, making sure that you're a strong human that doesn't, you know, fall walking down your steps, like all those things that just compound with, with a drug like this, where again, we just don't, I just wish there was a little bit more education about what, what this drug is doing before they're just handing it out like candy. So that, that's my soapbox. <laughs> so thinking about, again, kind of the changing needs of our population, you said it's not really that you, if, if you're kind of already doing things well, if you're already nailing the basics, you may not need to change that much as you enter perimenopause or go through perimenopause. Like you said, it's more about the emphasis on certain aspects of your nutrition. We talked about the the macro, like the big nutrient groups, right? The carbs, the protein, the fat. Are there any micronutrient changes, changes to the vitamins and minerals that we need to get? Yeah, so your your calcium, your vitamin D needs are going to increase during this time just because you are more susceptible to bone loss. Um, So emphasizing, you know, like calcium rich foods, making sure that you're getting outside to get your vitamin D, all of those things become important. Um, another, another mineral that I like to talk about too with this population is magnesium. So when you are stressed, again, that, that, cortisol, that cortisol level is going to be increased during uh, perimenopause because you are going through these hormonal changes. It just causes more inflammation on the body. Uh, magnesium can help combat that. So making sure that you're getting magnesium rich foods through the diet and then potentially supplementing with something like a magnesium glycinate or like a calm magnesium um, to, to make sure that your body, you're essentially like stress proofing your body as much as you can through nutrition. Um, So the calcium, the vitamin D, the magnesium, and then the iron, you know, it's always something that's important for athletes just to make sure that you're getting enough iron through the body and the way that your body's utilizing iron may or may not change because again of that gut diversity that's changing your body may not be utilizing the iron as well as it did before even though you're not technically bleeding um or you may not be bleeding as much other people are bleeding a lot so making sure that you're supporting your iron needs i was gonna say i had i had an athlete tell me because i we had a check-in they were feeling kind of like ooky and run down and i was like it was the last time you had your iron checked and they're like i don't need to get my iron checked anymore i don't get i don't menstruate anymore and i was like wait what (laughs) there are other ways that your body uses iron and just because you don't get a period which is one of the ways that the human body can lose iron doesn't mean that you don't have to worry about it anymore Totally. Your body still has iron needs. And again, like your iron needs aren't as high because when, when you're postmenopausal, your iron needs are not as high because you're not bleeding. But that doesn't mean, like you said, that your body's not using it. Like it, you still need iron for energy metabolism. Um, so Endurance to run far and run fast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so those are some of the, the other ones. I mean, I could go on and on about, you know, like your, your, vit- your B vitamins, like all of those things are so important. All the vitamins and minerals are important. Um, but those are the big ones that, that immediately come to mind. So kind of wrapping up here and thinking about, again, I want to I want to touch back on this concept of accepting things as normal and common that aren't normal or or, you know, might be common, but aren't something that we should accept as our new reality, because as we go through perimenopause and eventually into postmenopause, yes, things are going to change. But like you said, I think we, you know, either we don't have enough education about this or we are conditioned to accept that 
these horrible feelings and things are going to happen to us and that's our new reality that like I go from feeling kind of normal all the time to feeling terrible all the time and just chalking it up to be like oh I guess I'm in perimenopause like it's normal to feel bad all the time now and that's not true like there is kind of a yes some things may change but you shouldn't accept feeling bad all the time do you have any examples of clients you've worked with who described what they thought was a completely normal like perimenopause symptom and you're like that's not normal yeah I mean just feeling run down all the time like that that is not normal that's one of the biggest complaints that i see in my middle-aged women is that they are, their energy levels are just so low and they um they have a lot of cravings they have a lot of brain fog and then they get this like wired but tired where they can't sleep at night and so they're just like up all night but they're they're like i'm exhausted but i'm also not sleeping and i can't sleep and so and their doctor will just be like, oh, yeah, well, welcome to menopause. Like, it's so fun. Or welcome to perimenopause. It's so fun. And it's like, that is so dismissive. I just get so mad about those things. Let that's not to say that every doctor is like that. I have clients that have worked with, like, amazing doctors. But, like, it's just frustrating when you hear that because nothing is addressed, right? Like, they're not, say, asking about what's your what's your nutritional intake like? What's your protein intake like? How are you moving your body? You know, all of these things that just kind of get swept under the rug and like chalked up to just, oh, this time in your life sucks, like buckle up for the next 10 years. It's like, please don't settle for that. Um, and I have worked with plenty of women that when we do address the nutritional concerns, they are sleeping so much better. The brain fog goes away, their energy increases. And that's not to say that they don't also have to adjust what they're doing with their training. That's a whole another conversation for, you know, a run coach to talk about because there is different levels of intensity that need to that need to change through this time as well but yeah like don't settle for that and also know that you have the power to change right like don't don't let that you know advice of like oh just buckle up be your reality like you can you can do things to help mitigate these symptoms yes and it I'm going to kind of echo that and say sometimes when we go through these changes again thinking about menopause or you know perimenopause is like you have puberty and then you have like second puberty like we're heading in the other direction but it can feel like i said we talked about with it we open this conversation with it can feel like a time in your life where you're like you're kind of out of control you your body is changing in ways that you aren't expecting you don't it doesn't seem like you are in control um and that can just be a very just kind of like it's a really delicate time for a lot of people and it doesn't have you don't have to feel that way all the time yeah and I always I, I hope that by educating women we can help them feel more empowered around this time of like yeah my body is probably gonna change a little bit but that doesn't mean that my life is over that doesn't mean that I can't adjust to these changes like we are resilient human beings and it's very likely that you are going to live like 40% of your life post-menopause, right? Like we have to learn to adjust and just have a little bit of acceptance around this, but also know how to take care of our bodies throughout this time too, because it's just going to set you up for the next, you know, 30 to 40, 50 years. Like there's still so much life to live after, after perimenopause and menopause. So, Brooke, if somebody's looking for a bit more support in this area, uh, tell us what you offer and where they can find more information. Yes. So I currently offer one-on-one -on -one nutrition coaching, virtual coaching. You can find me through my Instagram, which is at Intentful Nutrition. 
Um, caveat, I'm going on maternity leave. So very limited um, time right now of me accepting one-on-one clients, but I will be back after maternity leave, which I don't even know when it's going to be like <laughs> the end of the year, maybe the beginning of next year. I'm not really sure. Um, but just, you know, come on over and follow me anyway and get to know me a little bit on my Instagram. Um, I also have a podcast, which is the Actively Fueled podcast, and it's brand new. So we're still learning and like, you know, getting the tweaks out, but we're talking about all things, you know, athletic nutrition and taking care of ourselves, really big emphasis on like preventing burnout in sport. So those are the main places that you can find me. Um, but you know, like I said, I'd love to have you and I am very interactive with my DM. So if you have any questions after listening to this episode, please reach out and I'm happy, happy to chat. Thank you for being here today, Brooke. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Elizabeth. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.